Welcome to Game Changers, a podcast about trailblazing West Australian women and their contribution to the wonderful game of soccer. This collection was produced and developed by the Centre for Stories and the State Library of Western Australia. Together, we are sharing stories that reflect our state's rich heritage, diversity and history. The interviews you're about to hear were recorded on Wajak Noongar Buja, and we pay our respects to their elders, traditional custodians and knowledge keepers who are the first storytellers of this place. In the lead-up to Perth hosting some of the games for one of the world's largest sporting tournaments, the FIFA Women's World Cup Australia and New Zealand 2023, we hear stories from local women who rose up against inequality and stereotypes to champion the game of soccer as far back as the 1970s. We hear from elite athletes, past and present, considered to be the best in the game, both locally and globally. And we hear from the community role models who are courageously making soccer more accessible and equitable for future generations of women, young girls and newcomers of all genders to the game. Sports media journalist Chris Morano sat down and heard why self-belief, sacrifice and strength is what it takes to become champions of soccer. In today's episode, Chris talks to Tracy Wheeler, who represented WA first as a midfielder and later as a goalkeeper, making her international goalkeeping debut against New Zealand in 1989. She has played 55 international matches for Australia, including three games at the 2000 Olympics. Enjoy. So Tracy, what was your childhood like growing up in Sydney? I've got a a slightly older sister and a younger brother, and we just saw a lot of sport. We um, lived in a a quiet street, but with a lot of kids around about the same age as us, and we had a park across the road from us. So all the kids in the street would tend to congregate across there and play cricket or soccer or rugby league or, you know, ride our bikes and skateboards and everything. So it was a a very active childhood and um, very outdoorsy. And, um, and our parents encouraged us to, to play a lot of sports from a, a young age and we, we did play a variety of things. We did little athletics as well as all of us playing soccer at some stage and my sister played netball, my brother played cricket and, um, yeah, we, we didn't spend a lot of time at home. <laughs> Do you remember the first time you touched a soccer ball? Uh, it was either across the road in the in the park with um, the kids in the street or it might have been at a primary school. We had a, a very multicultural primary school and um, so it wasn't all rugby league. Um, there was a lot of soccer being played there as well, so I was kicking the ball about a bit with the boys at school as well. Yeah. Yeah, how old were you at that time when you started playing? Um, I started formally playing around about nine I think I was, and so I was playing with the the boys in um, our church team because there wasn't any girls junior teams at that stage. So, and um, yeah, and and that was fun. I, I do remember my first match playing with the boys, and it was because I, I kicked the ball quite hard and it, it hit one of the opposition boys in the stomach and winded him. And you know, the opposition probably 
weren't it didn't even realize that I was a girl anyway and a lot of the boys had long hair and um you know it, they probably didn't really know that it was a girl playing anyway so and at, at that age um you know the girls can compete with the boys when you're young we're, we're physically similar and I started playing with the girls um in under 14s and um and I was way ahead of most of the girls when we started playing then because I'd been playing with the boys some of the girls were had reasonably equal skill to me but I was just physically um stronger and quicker and so I was just used to playing you know a a higher level with the boys at that age so um yeah so I noticed that as soon as I started playing with the girls that it was you know I was already ahead of just about all of them. With the boys, I played um, as a defender, so as a, a wide, a wide defender. Um, I think with the boys, often the best players were the the forwards. <laughs> so you know, if you weren't the best player, then you ended up getting pushed backwards a little bit. With the girls, as soon as I started playing, um, I was playing in the midfield for quite a few years with the girls, and yeah. That's, I suppose, where you have the most impact if you're a good player. Mm. Mm. Midfield is hard because it's so, it's so much running, yeah. lots of endurance, yeah, lots of. But skill I was required. doing little athletics then as well, and I was and cross country and everything, and so I was pretty fit. Yeah, it wasn't wasn't hard. Yeah, when I was about eighteen or nineteen, I was playing state league with the women, so that was the the top women's league in Sydney mm-hmm. at the time and I was a, a central defender and I played in goals a little bit when um when if the goalkeeper got injured or something during the match I'd be the one they'd throw in goals to you know um to finish off the match and anyway um the, the first league game of the season our goalkeeper injured a knee and I had to go in goals for the rest of the match and she was then out going to be out for the rest of the season so our coach who is also an ex-keeper himself he said to me look if I give you a little bit of coaching will you play in goals for us for the rest of the season and I thought oh I suppose it's only one year and it's a new challenge I'll give it a go so I did I think because he had seen me playing goals before when needed so he knew that I could play in goals and that game that I, I had to play in goals when our keeper got injured um, was against the team that we were expecting was probably going to win the league anyway, and I think they only beat us one nil or something. So I had a pretty, I had a good game, and he could see that with a little bit of coaching, I could, I could do better. So mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, by the end of that season, some of the girls were saying, "Oh, you're, you know, you're good enough to be in the Australian team as a keeper and and everything." Wow. And so, um, you know, once you. Most people see that you're a good goalkeeper. They don't like to let you back on the field again. They want to keep you in goals because good goalkeepers were few and far between and they didn't want to you know, let go of me. So I, I stayed in goals and then it was about a year later that I ended up getting selected in the Australian team. Yeah, that's So that was that's, pretty quick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I enjoyed playing in goals, but I also missed playing on the field because, you know, I, I like to run around and, I was always enjoying playing on the field and I didn't really want to let go of that either. So um, my coach, um, he allowed me to play half a game for the reserves quite often. So I'd play half a game for the reserves and then I'd play in goal on the field and then I'd play in goals for the um, first team. 
And when you think back to that time, like making the Australian team, like what do you think it was that made you a good goalkeeper that you could play at that level? I think my height, for one, is always an advantage to be, you know, a little bit more than the average height as a keeper and not short. But also um, I was reasonably athletic because, you know, I'd been a field player and I'd done little athletics, you know, high jump, long jump, things like that. So I was reasonably athletic and I just, I had good goalkeeping instincts in that I, you know, it was just a reaction for me to dive for things and and, and things like that. So um, I had sort of the good basics to be a good goalkeeper. I just needed some good coaching. There were not necessarily goalkeepers, but there was definitely some other um, girls older girls that were playing in New South Wales in the in the state team and things like that that I did look up to and, you know, wanted to, to be as good as them. So you started playing with the Matildas in the late 80s and then went on to the FIFA Women's World Cup. I think it was in, was it 91? So we, we didn't qualify for the 91 World okay. Cup. We um, missed out and New Zealand qualified ahead of us. Okay. We went to that World Cup. So we missed out on that one, but we qualified for the 95 World Cup. So that was the first one that um, I went to. What was it like, you know, being part of the World Cup and playing with the Matildas at that time? Because how old would you have been? Oh, mid, mid-20s, I suppose. It was exciting. And, I mean, it was basically the, the pinnacle of our sport. So, you know, it was – we were um, – very fortunate to have the opportunity to, to play. And, and because we hadn't qualified for the, the, the World Cup in 91, I think we appreciated it even more because we had missed out already, a lot of us. And we really appreciated the fact that we did we did get to that um, tournament. And as a goalkeeper, you don't always get to play because you could be the number two keeper. So I, I was very um, I was fortunate that I got to play in all the matches as well. I mean, it was a good environment. We had a good team. A lot of us had been in the team for, you know, quite a few years. Um, So we knew each other quite well. But by the same token, because we were from all parts of Australia and um, didn't actually get a lot of time together before tournaments and everything, often our biggest training block and time spent together was in the two or three weeks prior to the tournament. Mm. When we actually left Australia, yeah, and went, um, yeah, went overseas to to train and play a few matches before the tournament and everything. Mm-hmm. So that was that was when we get got to familiarise ourselves with each other again. And um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's certainly very different to what it is now, and it, and it did improve a lot over that over the years. But back then, there we didn't get to see each other a lot. You know, we did. We really got along well, and um, yeah, like I said, a lot of us. And and even though I there was from Perth, there was only me and, and one other girl from Perth in the teams and she's she'd been my teammate at club level and at state level and everything. So I knew her quite well. But also a lot of the girls there was a lot of girls from New South Wales and quite a few of them I'd grown up playing with as well. So there was quite a few girls that I'd known over quite a long period of time. Yeah. And you know, I played at club level with and state level with and everything. So Yeah. But there's always a broad range of age groups in as well, you know, mm-hmm. and it's always girls that are in their um, 
um, early 30s and girls are in their late teens and everything. So, you know, the age groups tended to sort of stick together a little bit. But by the same token, I think we all, you know, had a really good relationship with each other. You talked a little bit about, you know, as women in football and women's sport feeling a bit invisible at that time. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that felt like? Definitely sort of um, early 90s to mid 90s, especially there was, you know, we were going to World Cups or going to World Cup qualifiers and things like that. But really, um, a lot of the a lot of people, people here in Perth, the girls that, you know, we were playing soccer against here in Perth, I mean, they, they didn't know about any of that. They'd they we'd have a national championships once a year and they they sort of see who got selected in the national team after that and and then it was pretty much forgotten until the next year as far as they were concerned so a lot of people didn't really know what was happening i mean my family and friends here in perth knew that we were going to the world cup and quite a lot of them went and watched as well and had a nice little trip out of it and everything but um but outside of that, there wasn't much promotion at all. So, you know, you watch your TV, you wouldn't see anything. Read the newspaper, you wouldn't see anything. Um, I think SBS might have televised some of it, mm-hmm. but not much. Mm-hmm. So that was about it. So, you know, to, to some extent, we, we we really were a bit invisible at that time. I think with the, with the men's, um, if you're talking about soccer, I'm pretty sure they had bits about their National Soccer League was on television. Yeah. Whenever something was happening with the Socceroos, you'd hear about it. Yeah. So, you know, if, even if they were playing a friendly match or something, everybody would know about it. Mm. So in that way, that was, yeah, it was, there wasn't any equality there then. Yeah. And which was really disappointing and frustrating at the time. But looking back on it, you sort of see the scrutiny on um, a lot of the athletes these days and, you know, every bit of their behaviour is scrutinised and mm. um, and and looked at and criticised and so anything they say on social media and everything gets picked up. And so from that point of view, at least we, we didn't feel like our lives were invaded at all. But yeah, but a little more attention would have would have been good, would have been good for us and our efforts and it would have also been good for growth of the sport. How did it feel for you at least to have your friends and family in the stands yeah, watching? Yeah, that was great. I mean, for the one in Sweden, my, my mother and father, they did a, they, I think they went to the UK first and did a, a trip there and and my sister met up with them over there as well and, and for the to watch the World Cup and I think they went up to Norway and Sweden or something and everything after that. I'm sure they were very proud and they, they didn't, you know, they... They were always there watching when we were younger and um, and supporting us and everything, but they were never really vocal supporters. They weren't the parents on the sideline, you know, yelling out or or anything. And you know, they 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 didn't come from a soccer background at all themselves, so they didn't have coaching tips or anything like that. They were just very supportive of of all of us kids with our sport. I think sometimes it's really nice to. You know, leave, leave all the coaching to the coaches and um, and just get total support and positivity from your parents. Uh, during that time, any particular memories or 
that you're really proud of or any goals you saved moments kind of at the World Cup or the Olympics that stand out to you? Um, I, I do recall at the Olympics I um, I made a one-on-one save that kept us in a match against Sweden that we drew. She got through the defence and she only had me to beat. And, um, yeah, one of our defenders had, had made a bit of a mistake and um, <laughs> lost the ball. And so, she, yeah, she was pretty grateful that I'd saved that one as well. I find standing on the sideline as a coach or a spectator, I get so much more nervous than what I was playing. I think the nerves are there before the game starts and, you know, at the right beginning of the game. But once the game gets going, you know, you're just you're lost in the game and you're not, you're not really getting nervous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it's just your, all of your training kicks in and, you know, that it's your reaction is to, to do things as, you know, you've done a million times at training. Mm-hmm. Anything <clears throat> particularly challenging at that time? I think we talked a little bit about kind of work-life balance or what it was like for women. So probably the, um, the most challenging time was after I'd come back from my um, second knee reconstruction and basically j- during that, the time that I was away from the squad, they had a new coach. And, and prior to that, I'd been the number one keeper all of the time that I'd been in the national team, although there was you know, definitely other keepers that were challenging from my position. I'd still been seen as the, the number one all of that time. Anyway, I came back into the squad after my, um, my knee reconstruction and there was a new coach and he didn't see me as the number one keeper. He saw me as his number two or three keeper and, it was challenging then because um, I didn't feel like I was getting much of an opportunity to convince him otherwise and I think he was was pretty much, he wasn't really open to me being his number one keeper at all and um, and just given the amount of time that we had to spend away from home with, um, you know, very long training camps and, and everything at that time, it was challenging to um, for me because it was basically costing me a lot of money to be there <laughs> through you know loss of wages and, and everything, and I was you know questioning whether it was worth what it was costing me still to be there. I mean, I I had the support. There was there was a, a quite a few players in the squad around about the same age as me as well. So I was I think I was close to the oldest in the squad at that time anyway. But there was a few girls the same, a similar age to me, and they and they supported me. They sort of, you know, they could see um, that I was, you know, possibly not being treated as fairly as, as I should have been. But, um, but they were also, some of them were also in the same sort of situation in that they... Um, felt that they were being pushed out a little bit as all the younger players were getting encouraged and everything as well. So, you know, I wasn't the only one that was doing it a bit tough then, but we just we just all kept persevering and and, you know, expected that our um our chances would come if we just kept working at it and mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, I mean, at this stage this was um that this was leading up to the ninety nine World Cup. And so basically quite a few of us had were planning on, you know, being there for the 99 World Cup and the 2000 Olympics and probably not after that anyway. So 
we sort of, you know, realised that we were only probably going to be in the squad for a couple more years at the most anyway. So, you know, it was probably worth it for us to just keep on going if it meant, you know, getting to the 99 World Cup and the Olympics. So um, so that's what we, we were persevering with that and just, you know, working as hard as we could. And as it was, um, you know, I went to the, the 99 World Cup, played one match, which was more than what I expected to play. We didn't do that well, and the coach basically got sacked straight after that. Wow. His number, his assistant coach got given the job, and his assistant coach said to me, you're my number one keeper, you know, how much time can you dedicate to the team for the you know, the next 12 months leading up to the Olympics? So, I mean, basically that, for me then to get to play at the Olympics, that was hugely rewarding because of how much I'd, I'd had to put into it and, you know, um, it it was a much bigger effort than, you know, what it would have been if I'd been the, the number one keeper the whole time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. But also with the Olympics, I mean, that's just a, a totally different event. You know, we'd been to the 99 World Cup, which which was even bigger than the 95, the, you know, the US of supported and promoted women's soccer you know so well up to that point that you know the event was you know much bigger than what it had been before but um the olympics then was a an even bigger event because you've just got all these other sports competing and you know you're in the olympic village with all of these other you know legendary australian athletes from different sports and you know you're kicking a ball around with you know Tennis players, Leighton Hewitt, Pat Rafter, play people like that, and you know, there's all of these you know famous Australian athletes, you know, right around you the whole time. Yeah, yeah, it's just totally different event, and yeah, once in a lifetime experience. Mm. Now that we're looking ahead to the Women's World Cup coming to Perth, and yeah, across Australia and New Zealand in a couple of months, how does this? A moment feel for you in terms of like creating even more change for the women's game um well first of all I, it's it's still hard to believe that we're we're hosting a world cup i mean if you asked me 20 years ago even it's like oh I, I wouldn't have expected that we do i wouldn't have thought that the demand in australia and the support in australia would have been big enough to do it at that stage so it's you know it's it's unbelievable that we're even hosting it, but and and it looks like the ticket sales so far have been very good, mm. which is fantastic as well because we really need to you know if we're going to host it we really need to support it properly as well. But um and here in Perth we're having five matches. Um I'll just be excited to to have it here in Perth. I mean it won't be any of the Matildas matches so that. It won't be any. It won't be a team that I've sort of invested in at all that I'll be watching. So I'll just be enjoying the fact that you don't have to travel overseas to see such a big event. Mm. Hopefully, I'll be proud of the Perth um, public for getting out and filling a stadium. Yeah. yeah, I really hope that I sort of feel proud of our nation and proud of our city for supporting supporting the event. But what I'd most like to see come out of us hosting the World Cup is I'd like to see, like I said, a lot of spectators turning up to all of the matches. But I want people to not just want to participate in the 
in the sport. I want people to be supporting the sport. I want this to promote the sport. So I want people to go there and, and, and watch it and get that match day experience and then want to go back and watch more matches, mm. with especially something like um, the A-League yeah. matches and everything because that's that's something that hasn't taken off enough in Australia yet is supporting your local teams. Mm, like going out to Perth Glory Games. Exactly. I mean, it's it, the what was W-League, A-League has been going for about 15 years now and I don't think our, our crowds have gotten any bigger. Mm. And it's probably the same people that have been going for the last 15 years. And if you think about the amount of... Um, amount of women and girls that play here in Perth, the amount of women and girls that have played here in Perth, because there's a lot of us as well that, you know, were playing 20, 30 years ago mm-hmm. that still should be supporting the sport. You think of all of those people and, you know, we're only getting a, a thousand or something to watch these matches. It's like it's just it's just not right. People yeah. should be getting along and and watching matches, and if and if you can just get people there to watch one match, then they'll enjoy it enough that they want to go and watch more. Mm. I watch um, the men's EPL matches as well, and because I'm a Liverpool supporter, but I get totally frustrated at the amount of flopping that goes on, acting, everything, and it's like it's just so embarrassing. But um, you don't see that in the women's games. As much you might see it a little bit. It might be creeping in a little bit now, but um, I think that watching the um, game against the Matildas game against Scotland recently, that was a really good ad for the the sport because um, the referee let a lot of it go. She allowed it to be a physical match, and you know didn't didn't call um, fouls for you know a lot of little things, and it just showed that the the women want to play. A physical sport, fairly, but without all of this rolling around and, and everything mm. that's going on and spoiling the men's, um, the men's side of it. So, and that's the thing. I think if people get down and start watching more of, of these matches, then they'll realise that it's a really good quality game, but without all of the stuff that's spoiling the men's game. It's true, isn't it? When I think of like someone like Ali Carpenter, it's like you get down and and then she's right back up. And Hayley Rasso, I mean, yeah, all you got to do is watch her play. She goes in so hard. She does. But it's fair. And then, you know, they just bounce straight back up again. And, I mean, that, that's, that's like what it was when we were younger playing as well. So that's what it should be at the elite level as well. It should be, you know, people still playing a, an, an honest game. Mm. Yeah. I was chatting with someone the other day um, who kind of likened it to the Frio Dockers and that what they were saying is that there's been a, a lot of money invested in advertising as well, like the Dockers, like you see it everywhere, <clears throat> wherever you're walking or, or watching things online, but they'd love to see women's football in, in Perth and Australia get to that point of, you know, your brother, your dad, your friend, whoever's going down on the weekend to watch because people just want to be part of it and they're passionate well, about they're it. Part of the atmosphere and everything. And that's that's why I'm um, disappointed with, um, with the A-League having less um, or not having any women's um, games on free-to-air this year. 
because that's when you capture people that aren't watching this the sport they turn it on and they just happen to be on that station and the game's on so they'll watch it for five or ten minutes mm-hmm. and then they might think oh i'll watch the rest of that or i'll watch that another time but um yeah if you're relying on people that are already you know um subscribing to paramount paramount and, and streaming it well you know you just you, that's the audience you've already got you want to get an, a different audience as mm-hmm. well mm-hmm and I think what you were saying too about your childhood and growing up in a very multicultural area, I think that's something else kind of within Perth as well. It's like, how do we reach everyone in Perth? How do we make it visible that the Women's World Cup is coming or that these different games are being played? Well, that's the thing in, in Sydney when I was growing up, the, the sport that you'd see on TV the whole time would be the rugby league and, you know, if I didn't go to a primary school where there were migrant kids that wanted to play soccer, then, you know, all the kids would be playing rugby league. And it was only because, you know, I was at a school where we had a lot of, um, you know, Greek and Italian and Lebanese kids and everything Yeah, that wanted to play soccer that, you know, that we started doing that. Yeah. I think the games are going to be tele- televised on Channel 7, so I think that's helpful because they will, they will promote it. Mm. Usually they don't promote anything to do with women's soccer yeah. or soccer in general, really. But um, because they're, they're showing the games, I'm sure they're going to have to promote it a lot. So you're going to hear a lot. You'll, you'll see some ads on Channel 7 and you'll see a lot through their news and everything. So they will that way. I expect that through the city and everything, there should be some banners and stuff up. That's what they usually have at... Um, World Cups yeah. in their in their cities. Mm. So I expect that will be the case here as well. Yeah. How long did you end up playing with the Matildas and what year did you retire and then move into coaching? I finished up with the Matildas after the Sydney 2000 Olympics and I played for another, another year in which I went back to playing on the field a fair bit. Did you? <laughs> after that, yeah. So... And um, and then I injured my other knee and decided that that was a good time to stop playing. Mm-hmm. So I stopped playing in 2002. And um, I'd already done a little bit of coaching, like coaching sort of the state school girls keepers and coached a bit of the um, underage, the junior girls keepers, state team keepers and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, when uh, Perth Glory started, I was the goalkeeper coach for them the first year, and um, and then um, a couple of years after that, or a year or so after that, I think I started um, coaching the goalkeepers at Beckenham Angels, which was in the top tier of um, the women's soccer here in Perth at that time. So I only coached there for eight years, and then when um, the NPL started four seasons ago. I started at um, Murdoch Millville. So what did you take from your time goalkeeping with the Matildas that you brought into your coaching? Like any lessons learned or anything you wanted to impart on with the girls that you were coaching? Mostly I sort of felt that, especially when I first started coaching, there wasn't a lot of um, coaching available here for the goalkeepers in Perth actually the the female goalkeepers. So uh, I sort of felt that it was important for me to pass on as much as I could because I'd had the benefit of some very good coaches 
while I was with the Matildas. So I thought if I can just pass on as much as I can to these girls and, you know, you know, give them a bit of help. Um, but then, and, and, and I sort of was always aiming at, you know, coaching at the, the highest level with the, the goalkeepers. But, um, but I soon sort of found that coaching at club level that you'll, you know, if you're coaching a number of keepers, they're just at such varying levels and such varying um, sort of ambitions as to where they want to get with that you've got to sort of really be adaptable and coach people appropriately to, to what they're wanting to get out of it as well. So, and, you know, basically at the end of the day make sure that they're enjoying themselves and, you know, that they're um, enjoying being part of the club that they're at and mm-hmm. they're going to, you know, continue to play. We do a lot, a, a lot of skill stuff a lot of sort of situational training because a lot of goalkeeping is decision-making. Mm-hmm. And although we do a lot of work on skills and everything at training, at the end of the day when you get to the game, a lot of a lot of it is decision-making and, you know, the coach really can't help you a lot with that. You can only sort of discuss things later on and, and see if there are ways that you could do things differently or better and um, and that sort of thing. But also just supporting the keepers and, you know, um, making sure that they um, can get over their mistakes quickly and um, not dwell on errors and you know not not be affected by their mistakes too much. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, you've got to sort of be the right personality to come into goalkeeping to start off with. I think if you're you're somebody that's that's not going to um, deal with the fact that your errors. Could result, well, probably will result in goals, and you know, and then, and then that can affect the the result of the game. If, if you can't deal with that, then you 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 probably shouldn't be goalkeeping anyway. And mm. and so mo- most people sort of sort of self select themselves into the position mm. anyway. They they know that that they can um, d- deal with that before they start goalkeeping. And there are definitely some players that will never goalkeep because they, they're just terrified of the whole idea of goalkeeping. If you've got a keeper coach there, they know they've got somebody there that understands what they're going through. That's true. Because <laughs> the head coach doesn't understand. And if you've ever, you know, sat on the bench as a reserve keeper or something, then you'll often be appalled at some of the things that the head coach says because they, they just don't understand. They've just never played in goals themselves and they just don't, you know, really understand the decision-making sometimes and everything. So it can be a bit of an eye-opener sitting on the, the bench if you haven't before and listening to what some of the things that the coaches say. And that's the thing. Most of the time the keepers, um, you know, if, if that's been the case and, and the keeper hasn't been able to make a save, then it, then it's not so much a big deal, but it's more if the keeper lets in a soft goal or something or, or makes the wrong decision that... that um, results in a goal or something, then, you know, the keepers usually know if it's really down to them and they'll put their hand up, but, I mean, it doesn't that doesn't take away the result, does it? Yeah. <laughs> They've just got to deal with the result and, you know, hope their teammates can go and score some goals and, yeah. and help them out a bit. Yeah. Do you have any advice for the younger girls who are thinking about goalkeeping and even women coming into the game a bit later? 
Well, for the young ones particularly, and this is what they tend to do at junior age groups anyway, a lot of the time they don't have a, a specialist keeper in their, their team. A lot of the time it's a couple of different players that are, are rotating through the position. Uh, and I think it is a good idea to, um, at a young age, to spend some time playing on the field as well. Make sure you've got your, you know, good ball skills and and you know reading the play from a different position and everything as well. So I think that's a really good idea. Um, for for the for the older players coming into it, I don't think that's such a bad idea because sometimes there's a point where people don't want to run around as much, or they might have problems with ankles or knees or something, mm. and they can't run around as much. Um, but at the end of the day, as an older athlete, you often don't really want to dive too much either. Yeah. You told me when we were talking probably a couple of weeks ago that um, the game kind of lives on for you too because you're still in touch with a lot of the women that you played with and mm. the friendship that you have. Mm. Can you tell us a bit about kind of how that lives on for you? Well, first of all, there's the mostly the group here that I um, still keep in touch with that are a similar age group to me are the ones that I first started playing with when we first came to Perth. So they're our, um, our club and state teammates from, from way back then and we catch up regularly and, you know, have a chat and, and, and see how each other's going and everything. And um, so that's sort of one group. And then there are the Matildas that I played with and, um, you know, social media being as it is, it's made it so much easier to keep in contact with all of them mm. now as well. And um, and they're in, in different places. I um, I travelled to Adelaide last year with my mother to visit a couple of relatives and while I was there I caught up with, I think there was about four Matildas that I uh, played with. So we caught up then with them, um, going to... With the World Cup, I'm going to Brisbane and Melbourne and Sydney, so I'll catch up with a whole load of people then as well. Um, Went to the last World Cup as a spectator in France and caught up with um, an old teammate there that lives in Norway and one from the UK and one from Italy. What does it mean to you to be a woman today? Feels like we've just got so much more recognition and support and promotion and don't feel like we're a bit below the males in everything sport-wise as we used to be. And especially, you know, you look at the Matildas and their their profile is higher than the Socceroos now. Yeah. They're, you know, they would probably get more to a, a match now than the Socceroos would to support them and, um, yeah, it's um, definitely an, an easier time. You don't need to ha- don't feel like you need to have to work hard to to get everything that, that you feel like you deserve. Mm. Um, just how far our sport has come since, um, you know, when I first started playing for the national team for the Matildas, how far it's come with its... Um, the elite players now, you know, getting paid well and, you know, it's their, their full-time job. Where we, ne- we never could have dreamt that that would be the case. It was, you know, it was us paying to play basically and, um, and you know, playing in against 
in front of you know very small crowds and and things like that. So yeah, it's just it is amazing how far it's come, and um, you know who knows how much further it'll come. Maybe the the women will start getting paid huge amounts to play like the men are. I mean, the men get some of them get paid obscene amounts to play. Yeah, I don't think that's absolutely necessary, but um, but yeah. The majority, some of the high level women are getting paid very well now, and and you know hopefully um, uh, some stage soon all of the women at mm. you know at club level in in Europe and UK and and that will get paid very well. well I, I don't know that any of them have to work anymore, but they're getting paid enough enough to um to play full time, but yeah. not getting paid like what Sam Kerr is getting paid. Yeah. So for more of them to get paid well. So that they, um, so that when they leave the sport for whatever reason, whether it be you know injury or just you know aging out of it, sort of thing, um, that they you know they have something to show, you know, if they get getting into their thirties and they've actually you know earned a reasonable amount during their playing mm-hmm. career and, and not just got by the whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening. This podcast was produced by the Centre for Stories. It was developed in conjunction with and funded by the State Library of Western Australia. Our organisations believe in storytelling as a way to build more inclusive communities. Head to slwa.wa.gov.au to listen to the rest of this oral history collection. Or head to centreforstories.com to learn more about our storytelling services and mission. Special thanks to our production team, Script editor and executive producer, Louisa Mitchell, that's me, producer and interviewer, Chris Morano, and audio engineer, Mason Velios. Thank you.